Comixology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. I'm Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast in the spookiest month of the year, and we are dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Well, 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 we are back yet again with another spooky, spooktacular October extravaganza episode. And this one comes to us straight from the interwebs. Uh, Earlier this week on X, formerly known as Twitter, um, or should it be like Twitter formerly known as your ex i don't know it's on it's on the x you know you know how it is uh basically i i xed i tweeted i don't even know dude it's so confusing i tweeted out like hey it might be the middle of the month but what heresies do you want us to talk about and nick said hey you should talk about iconoclasm and i was like okay cool let's do it and so here we are um so without i guess any further ado first of all lucas my man how you doing how's it going what do you want to say on on this week's episode of the doxology podcast um i'm doing good things things are things are good fall season's in full swing so that's always nice heresy month is in full swing so that's super nice looking forward already to like christmas plans and vacation plans and all that kind of stuff so it's good it's good i am excited for this episode i am gonna be honest i was pulling up a web page or a document that i had forgotten to pull up uh so i wasn't really listening did you already name the, the heresy that we are talking i did about? very did you... yeah very briefly <laughs> um we're we're all professionals here obviously um yeah so iconoclasm is um very interesting um, because it opens up a, f- a lot of questions specifically for Protestants, um, specifically for, you know, what we might think of as sort of mainstream um, evangelical Protestantism, mainstream reformed Protestantism, and I'm using those terms sort of as as broadly as I can, like I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, to be too specific with what I mean, or carry too much baggage with those terms. Like, um, sort of the the general sort of Protestant Protestant Christianity, which is concerned with 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 theological precision, concerned with theological orthodoxy, um, concerned with reformational Christianity and theology. Um, and because there seems to be, at least on the surface, I think it's easy to, to either invent or to, you know, recognize some real tensions between um, practices that are pretty, pra- practices and beliefs that are pretty mainstream Protestant, like not, not little niche subcultures within various Protestant traditions, but but are generally, I think, would, would be pretty consistently recognizable as Protestant. And um, the, posi- the position, the beliefs, the practices, not only of other Christian traditions, but of um, seemingly, at least, of Christian traditions going back to what we would consider the early church, the patristic era, the church fathers, at least some of them, um, 
And the tension, therefore, for those Protestants from this sort of general mainstream post-Reformation version of, of Protestantism um, who are convinced of the importance of uh, theological retrieval and ressourcement and the importance and value and genuine organic connection to the broad heritage of the Christian tradition, you know, not not just starting in the 1600s or 1517 or whatever, but encompassing the entirety of the Christian tradition, um, going back to the early councils and such. And and so um, that's that's something that I think is is inevitably going to be an undertone to this conversation because you and I are both Protestants. You and I have always been Protestants, you know, within our within our Christian lives. Like we've never, neither of us have ever happened to, um, to, to, sp- to we visited, but, but we've never spent any time in um, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox traditions or churches or congregations. So um, that is, is sort of inevitably going to color our conversation um, in the sense of, not in the sense of like, what iconoclasm means as as a as a condemned heresy, or what um, what what the deal is, sort of historically speaking, and just in terms of defining terms, but in terms of what sorts of questions this heresy raises, um, because it's different, um, as we'll see, than other things that we've talked about, where you know, taking last week as as a perfect example, um, where both of us are Trinitarians. Uh, and whether you're Protestant, Roman, Orthodox, um, you all agree. <laughs> we all agree uh, in the uh, the basics of Trinitarianism and what it means to affirm God as three in one and one in three. And therefore, something like the Macedonianism we talked about last week, where basic, you know not to oversimplify, but basically it's a relatively cut and dry, is the spirit God or not? Here's how you answer that question. And if you answer it in the affirmative, then yeah, you would, you would reject those who deny it. Um, it gets a little more complicated with iconoclasm and I've been rambling, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop rambling now, but, um, I do want to just sort of highlight that, um, as we move on, that it's a particularly interesting conversation for Protestants because there are sort of, there are sort of more questions that come up that are unique to, um, or or at least uniquely the concern of Protestants and Protestantism versus if you are a Roman or Orthodox listener, um, it's, those same questions might not come up. Is, is, is what I'll say for now, and then we'll, yeah. we'll get into the, the specifics later. So how do you want to start off as far as like setting the stage for sure. this conversation? Well, if there were ever an episode with like unity and diversity, this might be a good example of one. Because um, even as I was reading, even amongst traditions that I do not find myself in, you mentioned Roman and Orthodox, it seemed that there isn't wholesale agreement on even what this means or its opposite is. Um, perhaps where we should start here is by defining what iconoclasm is. Um, generally speaking, it's the social belief in the importance of the destruction of icons and other images or monuments, most frequently for religious or political reasons. 
so this idea of, of iconoclasm is um, not only relegated to theology. It's not only in church contexts. There are other contexts where this idea of iconoclasm or an iconoclast, um, it exists. But basically, people who engage in or support iconoclasm um, are called iconoclasts, a term that has come to be figuratively applied to any individual who challenges cherished beliefs or venerated institutions on the ground that they are erroneous or pernicious even. Um, and so what's, what's interesting is like this idea of iconoclasm, while it might be carried out by adherence to a different religion. So for example, like Muslims and Christians, there have been, uh, different instances in the past where like these two different religions have had clashing, um, opinions and, you know, that has been, uh, you know, a, a, a problem, uh, most commonly, though, the result of this idea of iconoclasm, it's the result of sectarian disputes between people within the same tradition. Um, so it might be within Protestantism, it might be within um, Christianity more broadly. Um, but the term originates from the Byzantine iconoclasm, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But basically, it was the struggles between proponents and opponents of religious icons in the Byzantine Empire from about... 726 to 842 AD. Um, and so the, the degrees of iconoclasm vary greatly among the different um, traditions, even amongst religions and their branches, um, but they are strongest um, in religions which oppose idolatry. So most of the Abrahamic religions, so again, think Christianity, um, uh, uh, Judaism, and, uh, and Islam. Um, but What's what's interesting is I think depending on depending on what tradition you find yourself in today, you might have a differing opinion on what this thing is. Like basically, at the end of the day, the question is like, should we have icons or should we have images or monuments representing God, representing saints, representing um, different parts of our of our faith um in a religious context and uh, again like if you are somebody who finds yourself in perhaps like a presbyterian context for example so that's within protestantism um within christianity uh you would be somebody who likely would use like uh, the term second commandment violation if there are any representations of christ or or God, um, because that violates the second commandment, which says, you know, you should have no graven images. But if you're a Catholic, if you're an Orthodox person, if you're within those traditions, iconoclasm is a heresy. Like, not just something you shouldn't do, not just something that might be bad, um, but this idea of destroying icons is heretical. Um, that's pretty well, strong I, language. To, to push it, it's, it's actually, it's the, it's, not the act of destroying an icon. It's what was condemned is those who deny the veneration of icons. So um, forget if, if a Presbyterian goes into an Orthodox church and breaks an icon. Just just the Presbyterian position or sure, just, okay, the, just, just the Puritan position of, of no, no iconography um, is, is, a, is a heretical position. And um, let's remember a couple things. One, heresy, like like 
first of all, like iconoclasm has come to be used in any sort of generic sense. We're talking. This is Heresy Month. We're talking about um, the Christian heresy that was condemned at the Second Council of Nicaea, which was is is recognized as the Seventh Ecumenical Council um, in the eighth century and uh, was a response to the iconoclastic controversy that you referenced lasted, you know, roughly a century, where there was some, you know, there's some back and forth depending on, on, on who is ruling the Byzantine Empire and what their position is. But basically, um, the iconoclasts were called that because they destroyed images because they were opposed to the veneration of icons, which is the other um, term we need to define. And... Uh, the the oppo the opposition to that you know um, we could call it icono duels those who 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 uh, uh, serve icons or worship icons venerate icons or we could call it icono uh, the iconophiles those who like love the icons whatever um, that position those who affirm the validity the uh, necessity even or or in you know the certainly the the per permissibility of the veneration of icons. Um, is just this is not really debatable um, on the authority of the Second Council of Nicaea is uh, after that council the Orthodox Catholic position, and I'm using those those words in their meaning, not referring to the communions of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, because this happened. This is this is the Seventh Ecumenical Council of the Undivided Church. So we talk a lot about the Ecumenical Councils and their authority, Nicaea and uh, Chalcedon and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is one of those councils. Both um, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics uh, view these as authorita you know, authoritative um, councils. Um, and so Protestants who affirm the ecumenical councils, they have to at least, they have, to at least have an answer to this. And, and so this idea of venerating icons if you ever go into an Orthodox church, you'll witness, you know, people, they, they kiss the, the I'm, I'm assuming we all who are listening, and I shouldn't assume this, but you have a picture in your mind of what an icon looks like. Um, it, it's the, the specific, um, you know, Byzantine icons have a specific um, aesthetic appearance and style, and that comes from certain rules of iconography and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's the specific um, sacred images that are used in worship they are they are often called windows to heaven um so you'll see the faith the orthodox faithful as well as other like catholics but um they will make prostrations before these icons they will kiss these icons like candles pray to pray pray with pray in front of um, veneration so you know this word we use of, of you know the venerable whatever like showing honor reverence comes from that that root um, this is something that occurs because this of this position that that icons are quote-unquote windows to heaven is sort of a, a cheeky way of saying it where the, the the honor that is that is given to this image made of wood and paint and gold or whatever else is is, is put on this this piece of, of sacred art um, passes through this icon to the thing that it is depicting so we have it we have an icon of you know of of christ and and the virgin or something like that and and it's not that i am honoring this wood and paint but i'm honoring christ and his mother and i and it, this is the vehicle through which i'm through which i'm doing so and icons depict 
um, Christ, biblical uh, events, stories depicted in, in iconographic form, um, saints, events from saints' lives, uh, also just like a quote-unquote portrait of a saint, you know, like we might see it that way. Um, and closely related to this is inevitably the question of, you know, vener- uh, uh, invocation of saints, because if you have an icon of, you know, St. Thomas, I don't know, he's the first one that popped into my head, and you then and you then venerate that icon, the question, well, okay, so another Protestant question beyond the veneration itself is, you know, is Thomas someone who we make prayer to? Um, so there are sort of these two questions. What do we do with the actual veneration of this image? We could say, what differentiates that from idolatry? Is that is that a second commandment violation or is it not? You know, because obviously it's not just the Protestants or the iconoclasts who are concerned with violating the Ten Commandments. The Orthodox position is also, um, you know, you might disagree with this interpretation, but it's it's self under it's self understanding is is that this is precisely not idolatry. It's precisely not violating the second commandment, um, but. So all of that to say that as well as, you know, closely related, but strictly speaking, a different question is this question of praying to saints in general and the, and the validity of that, which we probably won't get into here just because it's, it's, it will take us probably too far afield. But it is worth thinking about these things. Um, and so what's the deal with venerating an image and how is that not the same thing as a pagan um, committing idolatry with a statue of Baal or Zeus or whatever, right? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, in direct response to that question, and I, I even, like, there's more context and backstory I want to give in a minute, but to, to answer that that very question... I almost wonder, like, is the idolatry the fact that you have that statue, or is the idolatry the fact that that your deity is someone other than the one true God? Like, is it, like, could, how, how could I say this in a different way? Um, like, obviously, there is a command that says, you know, you should have no graven images, right? Like the pagans of the surrounding areas, or surrounding Israel, right? Um, we but, the kings, the the prophets, they off, they often speak out against um, against idols and even to some degree the destruction of the the wood, the gold, the carved image, right? And so, yeah, is is the is the sin the image itself and the carving of an image? I mean, so like, is it wrong to have a statue of Spider Man? Like, it's a graven image. It's a it's something that has been manufactured and made. Um, but like, or is the idolatry the, um, the worship of, or the, the adoration you give to that, that object? That's sort of like my natural question. Um, perhaps one that we'll sort of come back to here in a second, but I wanted to give again, further context to this idea. And so specifically during the Byzantine era, the period after the reign of Byzantine Emperor Justinian from 527 to 565 AD saw a huge increase in the use of images, both in volume and quality. Um, and so government-led 
iconoclasm began with Byzantine Emperor Leo III, who issued a series of edicts between 726 and 730 against the veneration of images. So this religious conflict created political and economic divisions in Byzantine society. Iconoclasm was generally supported by the Eastern poor, the non-Greek peoples of the empire who had frequently um, dealt with raids, um, for example, with the, the new Muslim empire. Um, but on the other hand, the wealthier Greeks of Constantinople and the people of the Balkan and Italian provinces strongly opposed iconoclasm. And so what's interesting is this, this, this idea um, is even more broad than just strictly speaking religious. Like there, there was a sense in which like even the daily life of most peoples back in this time was like tied up within their religious tradition. Um, but like this wasn't just like people in pews like arguing over stuff. Like this was like everyday people all over the place that this was impacting. And so to may maybe make this a little bit more relevant to our traditions and what Lucas and I are more familiar with, what, what gets really interesting is when you look at the, the Reformation era. Um, so Luther, for example, argued that the mental picturing of Christ when reading the scriptures was similar in character to artistic renderings of Christ. Um, like Luther argued, like if you're imagining, like you're reading the parables and you're trying to imagine what Jesus looked like as he's speaking at the Sea of Galilee or walking on the water or doing whatever, like what's the difference between that and an artistic rendering? Um, but in contrast to the Lutherans who favored certain types of sacred art in their churches and homes, uh, broadly speaking, the Reformed, so think of like Calvinistic leaders um, in particular, Zwingli and Calvin encouraged the removal of, of religious images by invoking the Decalogue's pro uh, prohibition of idolatry and the manufacturing of graven or sculpted images. Um, Zwingli, in particular, was like a big, 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 strong opponent. He opposed um, these, these images and their use. And so what's 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 kind of wild and like looking back in history is the this the significant iconoclastic riots that took place even so in Basel in 529 Zurich in 523 Copenhagen uh, and I'm sorry this is 15 not 5 so 1529 1523 Copenhagen in 1530 um, Geneva 1535 Scotland 1559 so on and so forth and so this uh, Calvinistic uh, iconoclasm in Europe provoked riots um uh lutheran people in germany um were were antagonistic as well um and so this 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 like created tension like very real tension not just like again people on the internet like today debating second commandment violations like this was impacting the way people lived their daily lives and so this is like a serious issue like something that's again at least 500 years ago people weren't uh taking flippantly they weren't seeing this as just another thing that's like well you can believe it or not and we can go our separate ways like this was resulting in actual riots and like issues on a political level um so that's worth noting that again this is this isn't just some uh obscure trivial thing to debate but like this was integral to the daily life and worship and rhythm of believers I mean, yeah, I think that's a that's just a good thing to keep in mind generally when 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 reading or listening or watching anything on um, on church history, on the theology, on, sorry, the history of ideas, historical theology, all that kind of stuff. Like, 
Um, if you're if you're just in your abstract um, armchair, you know, debate mode, you're you're not. That's that that's not how the world has worked. You know, that's not that's that's not how these these debates are had and and have been had. But another question that is I think important to answer at this juncture is so. Okay, we've said that the Second Council of Nicaea at the Second Council of Nicaea. Um, the iconoclasts, those opposed to the veneration of, of sacred images, um, lost, and the the what became the official Orthodox position is the position that um, veneration of icons is good, is is right to do. And so, like, did they just really like? Did people just really like icons? Did 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 they just think they looked nice? Um, was it? whatever like why did it why did why did they say this is um the orthodox position and remember we're you know believing people so so we're not going to waste our time on debating all the presuppositions here but the the councils of the church were not meeting together to create and decide orthodox theology they, what they were in their own self-understanding, and if you read their their um, the documents from any of the councils, this is they say it explicitly. They are in their minds genuinely being uh, led by the Spirit to recognize that which is good and that which is which is not good. So it's not a bunch of people led a council and they didn't like the iconoclast, so they got to pick it, but. Um, that aside, what this debate was, so we can think of like Arianism and the debate at the Council of Nicaea, Macedonianism and the debate at the Council of Constantinople, these questions, is Jesus God? Is the Spirit God? Who is God one or three or what? Um, we can think of these as, as essentially, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but essentially councils about the trinity who is god how do we refer to him what is correct or incorrect language that we can use to speak of the god of the bible the god who we worship the god revealed in christ and on the flip side of that how do we speak of christ how do we speak of the spirit are they are they they god are they gods You, you know those questions ephesus is where nestorius is condemned mother of god debate chalcedon the hypostatic union, two natures in one person, responding, you know, Eutyches, who was an extreme monophysite, etc. Those are the first four, right? Those two, and then and then uh, five, six, and seven are essentially. So the first two are about the Trinity. The last five are essentially a, questions about Christology. Basically, for. Four or five hundred years after Constantinople won, the church, when it meets in council, is essentially meeting to hash out more nuance and specifics in questions that arise about what is Orthodox Christology. Nicaea too is about icons, and it seems like this is a little bit of a of a of a turn to something else. We're not talking about Jesus anymore. We're not talking about his natures or his wills or whatever. We're talking about his, or we're talking about 
um, Christians praying with pictures. How is this Jesus? Well, the reason iconoclasm is heretical in the eyes of the early church, in the eyes of the council fathers, and in the eyes of the most significant church father who, had, who was a defender of icons, St. John of Damascus, is because iconoclasm denies the incarnation. It denies the reality and the results of Christ, the, the word of God, um, being made flesh, and what that means for matter and for our worship. And a couple, of, a couple of things is, one, if Jesus was really incarnate, then if you depict him as the incarnate one, so you have an icon of Christ's baptism, and you have in, in that, you have a picture of Jesus. Well, the iconoclast will say, that's idolatry, because you cannot, it's, it's idolatry, it's blasphemy, you can't depict God God is God is God's essence is it's unknowable it's infinite it's not bound by space and time you know all these things you it's you cannot depict God and the orthodox response to that is well if I have a picture of Jesus and you're telling me that that's blasphemous or her or um, idolatrous because I can't depict God in visual form then what you're telling me is either you're an historian and you're saying that this picture of Christ is in his human nature, not his divine nature, and therefore those are separated in his union. Or you're a monophysite and you're telling me that um, there, it, what I have here in this picture of Jesus being baptized is not a depiction of Jesus in his human nature, but it's a picture, it's a picture of the divine nature because they've been mixed together in some way and, and he's not really human. And so iconoclasm is actually a Christological heresy. The debate, and the reason it's it's such a debate that there's an ecumenical council, and just to give you an idea also of how intense and, and important this is, the feast day that is in, in the Orthodox Church calendars, the feast day that um, commemorates the, um, the official, uh, like, so the council had already happened in the late 700s, but it wasn't until the 800s when Empress... Um, I think it was Irene. Um, I can't remember if it was Irene or Theodora, but uh, Byzantine Empress um, officially lifted the legal ban on on icon veneration, and the icons were were brought back into Byzantine worship. Um, the feast day that first of all, there's a feast day commemorating that event. Second of all, it's called the Triumph of Orthodoxy. This is not a this is not a secondary debate for um, people who have a uh, correct understanding of the issues at stake, um, because the issues at stake are as central as the issues of Nicaea 1 or Chalcedon, where we're talking about the very nature of who Christ is. Because what John of Damascus is going to say is, among others, but he's the most important, significant, and, and well-known defender of icon veneration, what he's going to say is, in the incarnate one, God has revealed himself in matter. Jesus takes on a real flesh. And so when, you, when, when a disciple looks at Jesus, he's seeing, and we've talked about this before, how that man that he's looking at is God. And that's not because he's not really God or he's not really man or he's some kind of 
mixture, but it's because of what at this point in church history has already been established. It's because the word became flesh within the person of the divine logos, human and divine natures are hypostatically united um, and all that that entails. And one of the consequences of that is that he has revealed himself to human sight. So you can depict God in Christ. Orthodox iconography does not depict God in himself, right? There's not an artistic or um, sort of a, a limiting, like like you have a little idol, a little statue where you say, oh, God's essence is, is contained in this thing. Um, no. And, and that includes icons of Christ. Um, and then he's also going to say that icons of, of the saints, you know, Mary being, being at the top of the list and then all the other saints— um, are and, and then showing reverence to them is be, is is uh, is important because it's honor. What's really happening when I when I honor the saints? What I'm really doing is honoring God by showing reverence, respect, love, honor to those who are the friends of God, those those who are with God in heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then he's also going to say that because. God has become incarnate, he has actually, not just human nature, but matter in general, he has sort of sanctified it to where we, and this, this, is, this is much more sort of a sacramental um, point, but um, we experience God, we, we are, we are medi- grace is mediated to us by God in matter all the time, bread, wine, water, uh, word, right? Like when we listen to the preaching of the gospel, um, I would argue that in itself uh, is, you, you know, word, spoken words, written words. Uh, they're part of the created order. That they're not, they're not outside. You know, you can't hold somebody's words when they're talking to you. But like, they're not. <laughs> the way we communicate is not outside of the the material created world when we when we speak with audio waves and and you know however that works that I don't not quite understand but. Um, so that is essentially the argument and that's why icon veneration wins the day is because the church is recognizing the, um, what's at stake Christologically. And, and so that is, is first and foremost, I think most important. And I'll just end by reading, um, an extract. You can find this at newadvent.org, um, an extract from the Second Council of Nicaea. This is this is part of their their declaration, um, their their sort of official statement. Um, and so they have um, basically put forward in the beginning of this. They're they're basically just like they're going down the other six councils and saying we are in agreement with with these ecumenical councils that have gone before. We are, we are simply um, standing in the faith that, that the fathers of these councils have delivered it to us. And then they say this, to make our confession short, we keep unchanged all the ecclesiastical traditions handed down to us, whether in writing or verbally, one of which is the making of pictorial representations agreeable to the history of the preaching of the gospel, a tradition useful in many respects, but especially in this, that so the incarnation of the word of God is shown forth as real and not merely fantastic, for these have mutual indications and without doubt have also mutual significations. So 
in short, they're saying, number one, you know, this is what we were saying, and number one, we are concerned with the preaching of the incarnation of the gospel. And then they go on, and they're talking about they're talking about making um, uh, images of, of other things. So they're talking about um, like the the cross itself, right? Like show like that being something that people reverence because this is the instrument on which Christ was crucified that that bought you know purchased our salvation, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, um, and, and including the mother of God and other saints, and they say this, um, by, and angels, et cetera, et cetera. By so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, so the more often you see the saints in in an artistic form, um, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes. So you see a picture of Mary and, and or uh, the Archangel Michael or Saint, you know, Theophilus or whatever, and you are, um, your, your, as you do that, your, your memory is being lifted to what those things represent, not the picture itself, but you're remembering, oh, Mary and, and her response of faith and, and the incarnation. And, oh, you're remembering, uh, Michael and his, his protection of the saint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and to a longing, you know, a memory of their prototypes into a longing after those prototypes. And to these, this is, this is the veneration part. To these icons should be given due salutation and honorable reverence, not indeed that true worship of faith. And in the Greek, they're using different words which correspond to veneration and worship in English would be one way to do that. Um, which pertains, so the true worship of faith pertains alone to the divine nature but to these, as to the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, so in a church, um, traditional churches, people bow before the cross. The book of the Gospels that is read in, in the liturgy, people bow before that. To other holy objects, incense and lights may be offered according to ancient pious custom. Four, the honor which is paid to the image passes on to that which the image represents, and he who reveres the image reveres in it the subject represented. And then this is the decree of the council, thus the teaching of our holy fathers, that is the tradition of the Catholic Church, which from one end of the earth to the other has received the gospel, is strengthened. Thus we follow Paul, who spoke in Christ, and the whole divine apostolic company and the holy fathers, holding fast the traditions to which we, which we have received. So that, um, and I'm done here, but that is the, that's what the condemnation of iconoclasm is all about, Right? It's, it's a Christological debate concerned with preserving the Orthodox teaching of the Incarnation and an understanding of honor and worship that uh, makes room for pious religious reverence to be given to um, material things that God uses to, um, to communicate his grace to us um, and that distinction is really important, be not because I'm saying that it's necessarily right or wrong, but because in the council's position, what they're saying is we do not worship icons, we venerate them. Now, someone might say, well, that's just splitting hairs. What's the difference if you're bowing down to a picture of Mary or, your, or whatever? How is that different than worshiping? That... 
that in itself is, is, a, is a longer debate than we have time for. But it is important, you know, if you're going to say, oh, you know, Eastern Orthodox people commit idolatry with their icons. There's, it's more complicated than simply, are they bowing before a picture? Because yes, they're bowing before a picture, or they're kissing the picture, or whatever. But if you have this philosophical, theological distinction between worship and veneration, you have to deal with that. Even if you come away saying, uh, the veneration thing makes me uncomfortable, I'm not sure it's really different, you do have to recognize that there is that difference. And more importantly is to understand that iconoclasm is a heresy. That's a historical fact because, remember, we're talking about this position and this practice that has been the church gathered together at an ecumenical council and condemned it. So just historically speaking, it is a heresy by definition, um, officially, so to speak. Um, and the reason for that is what the, icon the, the, the position of the iconoclasts, not that they were monolithic, but just generally speaking, in this era, in the 8th century in, in the Byzantine Empire, um, they were making, whether on purpose or not, they were making Christological statements that were unorthodox. And so... To, uh, in the words of, there, there's a theological statement that the ACNA put out, the Anglican Church in North America, as part of their foundational documents. And there's, there's part, a part where they, number five in this statement, concerning the seven councils of the undivided church, we affirm the teaching of the first four councils and the Christological clarifications of the fifth, sixth, and seventh councils. So, and then uh, insofar as they agreeable to the Holy Scriptures. Um, just like everyone, you know, scripture is at the top. Um, and so that in this conversation, I think is where Protestants need to understand, uh, what's at stake. And then comes the question of, okay, well, cause I'll, I'll put in, you know, putting my cards on the table. Um, I don't venerate icons. I, I love iconography. I have a bunch of icons that, um, um, I, and, and honestly, I've been edified spiritually by them before. Um, I do show reverence, you know, I, I reverence the altar in churches. I, I, I reverence the, the image of the cross, um, things like that. Um, because that is, uh, that, that is part of my tradition, but, but within, within, uh, the liturgy, the, the veneration of icons and prayer before them and offering of incense to them and that kind of thing. That's not part of my tradition, and and ultimately that's because I, I do come out of the Reformation, and and I believe that that is that is that is good. But ultimately, my concern with the veneration of icons is not, I would argue, an iconoclastic concern based on what the Council of Nicaea II identifies as the problems, right? Um, because I affirm what Nicaea II is saying about Christ what John of Damascus is saying about Christ. And I think that um, to simply go Zwingli's route and smash the windows and throw the organ out on the street um, maybe misses the point. Maybe is, I don't know if I want to use the word overreaction, but something like that. Um, but I'm curious what, what your thoughts are in response to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and what's, 
I'll, I'll just preface by saying I come from traditions that are even, um, that have even lower liturgies or, um, I'm trying to think of a more accurate way to say that, like from Baptist traditions, there are, there are <laughs> Baptist traditions are very bland, very, very plain. There's not a lot of, um, uh, you know, processions and, and bowing and, and praying. Like it's very just like your average typical, evangelical context and so like fr from my own just experience i don't have a ton of even interaction with icons um it's just not like baptists don't have them that's just like the reality of the situation but as i've also thought about this this topic and um just more broadly have have thought about icons too like yeah i i, I think that they're, they have their place i think that they are important i think that they are good i think that they can they can um uh even aid us in our in our worship in a sense we are we as people are our visual people like we live in a visual spatial world where um, sometimes concepts can be communicated um, in a way visually that just can't be communicated as well uh, vocally and so yeah I think I think I too have been edified by by icons and by what they represent um, I mean I even like so just to like read this, the Ten Commandments, uh, the one that says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters under the earth, do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. So I think I can see a difference between worship and veneration. Um, I think it's it, depending on depending on your tradition. Again, I think some people don't see the difference between worship and, and veneration. Um, but I, you could almost boil it down to what's the difference between serving and honoring? Cause there's a difference in like, this says, uh, do not worship them and do not serve them. So there's a, a way in which you offer yourself entirely to something you are, you are, there is something that is an object of your worship. Um, and th the difference between that and honoring somebody, you know, you can honor your father and mother. I can honor you, Lucas, as uh, a fellow saint. That doesn't mean I worship you doesn't mean I, I am like committed to you and serve you. Um, and so I don't know if that's like a helpful distinction to, to think of worship and veneration in that way between like service and honor. Um, that might not even be the, maybe somebody who comes from an Orthodox tradition, maybe that wouldn't even be the way that they would describe it. But like, that is how I have thought about it. Um, but if your definition is different, or if, if the way that you think about, um, you know, iconography and this idea of iconoclasm. Like if, if you are somebody who, who, if your veneration is actually closer to worship, then I do think that that's a problem. If, if, if something has taken place in your heart, that which only should belong to God, that's a problem. Like idolatry is a problem anywhere that it exists. Your job, your family, finances, sports, like as John Calvin himself said, the heart is an idol factory. We produce idols all the time. There are things that we offer our allegiance, our obedience, and our devotion to constantly that are not God. Whether graven images or not, concepts can be idolatry. And so I think that's like the bigger issue at the end of the day is like what this boils down to isn't that you have a statue or I mean, in in actuality, you know, I mentioned earlier, if you have like a little Spider-Man figurine or a little action figure, in some sense, that is... It, the the Ten Commandments, this reads, do not make an idol, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens or on the earth or under the waters. So like that makes it sound like you can't make an, a graven image of anything. Don't bow to it and don't serve it. 
But again, I, there's that difference between worship and honor. I don't worship Spider-Man action figures. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. Um, but like at the end of the day, like my greater concern is the idolatry of the heart. And I think that's getting to the point. Do not make an idol for yourself is the first thing that it says in this commandment specifically. Yeah. And also I think, um, well, not I think, but just on the other for Protestantism, the other thing to keep in mind is when you read um, the reformers and when you look at the changes that are that are that are being made in churches during the reformation in the west um what they are like their context historically speaking they're not um talking about like just what whatever position you take it's just seems historically obvious to me like they're not sitting in rooms debating documents, right? They're looking around at the practices that they're, that they're experiencing and witnessing in their context and the teachings that are, that are happening, right? Like um, with indulgences, it's not just this abstract, somebody puts forward this idea and makes an argument about why these things called indulgences are good, and then Luther puts forward an argument about why they're bad, and then you have the Reformation. But Luther's going around, and he's listening to people selling indulgences and, and seeing them do that and what they're telling the people who they're selling them to, and that spurs, you know, the, the that's like the primary issue in, in his 95 Theses is, is debate, that he wants to debate these things with in the context of theological um, academia of the day, but like he's not sitting abstractly. He's he's seeing the abuse of things happening, and that is the context where medieval Roman slash Western Christianity, whether you think it was perfect or apostate, <laughs> is not the same thing as eighth century Byzantine Christianity whether you think it was perfect or apostate, right? Like in reality, they were both in between <laughs> those two extremes. But my point being, um, there wasn't, you know, like, like, or yeah, let me rephrase that. There, my point being, um, if you look at, and you it, like, so for an example, a, a good example um, that is slight, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to do with icons directly, but it has to do with uh, invocation of the saints. Um, there are there are Marian prayers, so like prayers to Mary, that you can read from medieval um, Western sources that use language that is just bonkers. Like I, I should have thought of this and pulled one up ahead of time, but um, I know I read I read a couple of them in um, what's his name. Uh, uh, Duffy, Ian Duffy, The Stripping of the Altars is is the big influential book he wrote. Um, it's a history of of the Reformation in England, um, like like what medieval Christianity was like in England before and then after the Reformation. Um, and he he quotes some of these some of these Marian prayers. And I mean, it's like it's like I commit like, to what you were saying. It's like a prayer to Mary, in, invoking Mary to to pray unto God on your behalf. You know, something that's pretty standard in you know Roman Christian practice. Um, and then it's, but it's like the the language in that prayer is something about 
you know, all grace comes from you. I devote myself entirely to, to, to you. I seek you alone for my salvation. You know, the, 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 this is a paraphrase. It's not, it's not a direct quote. I'm not ascribing those words exactly to anybody. Um, but that is very different than even like um, hymns or prayers that invoke Mary that I've heard when I have visited Orthodox churches or, um, or uh, uh, Roman masses. Um, where, not saying it's right or wrong, but there, there's a contextual difference between a prayer for salvation from Mary, <laughs> essentially, and another prayer to Mary that asks her to pray to Christ on, on my behalf. They can both be wrong, you know, and, and I would argue that they are from a, from a Protestant perspective, that prayer, it ought to, basically prayer would not fall under the category of veneration for me, right? That would fall under the category of worship exclusively. That's a whole other conversation, whether or not you pray to saints and why or why not. But my point is like the context of medieval Western Christianity that the reformers are living and breathing and working in colors a lot of their responses to uh, various things. Because you can read about medieval Western Christianity and the practices around relics, private masses for the dead, um, uh, um, uh, statues and, and, and various forms of sacred iconography and the practices made uh, around using those images um, are some of them some of them are just like they're, they're, they seem to have developed into something different than they were originally intended and I'm not saying that every medieval Roman Christian or every, you know, uh, Eastern Christian uh, has or, or did or, or most definitely fell into that kind of a um, misuse and abuse of images. Um, and I'm also not saying that just because they were abused, we can, we can just say, oh, well, anything the reformers had to say had to do with abuse and so we can ignore that because we know we're not abusing that. You know, like, I'm not saying that either. All I'm saying is the context is so important because what was going on in the West um, needs to be understood since the reformers are writing these things in the West at that time. So we can't impute either our understanding of, you know, patristic Greek context or our understanding of 21st century American context. We can't impute that into 16th century Bohemia or <laughs> Sussex, England or whatever. We have, to, we have to recognize that context and we can see ways in which um, use of images is different during that time than something like the description we see in the Acts of the Second Council of Nicaea. And that is not to give a final answer on the question so much as just to recognize the terms of the debate need to be, um, the reformers are not writing after, you know, in Byzantium after the decrees of the Second Council of Nicaea, right? They're writing in a different context at a different time where practices are different. And so maybe it's a straight line and the development was inevitable. And maybe that's something to think about. But the development did happen.
um, and, and it's important for the development into some other kind of practice did happen. And it's important to recognize that in order to fairly judge what is being said and what's not being said by either side, sure. I guess, is my point. So maybe maybe to like wrap this up, the, the question that I have for you, Lucas, those people who would claim that a visual representation of Christ is a second commandment violation. So I'm thinking of some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Um, what is your response to them? Do you think that they are in error? Do you think that you would label them as iconoclasts um, or is it something else entirely? I think the, like, right away, the, the response from me is going to be to see what the what that statement is built on because um if i start asking why do you say that you know and and we go back and forth and i start asking questions about like the incarnation right um and like if they say oh well you know an icon of of christ is a second commandment violation because you can't depict god in his nature and then i start asking them questions about well, well, but what about the? This is a, this is after the incarnation. This is a you know a picture of God as He revealed Himself physically in the incarnation. And if they're like, if if they're like, oh well, yeah, that's a good point. That's not what I'm talking about. Then that's I think fundamentally a different a different position than the iconoclasts. Now, if they're like, no, it doesn't matter because Christ is God. Even in his incarnate state, you cannot do that. Then I'm going to be like, yikes. Let's talk through what the incarnation means and doesn't mean. And at the end of the day, um, that's going to determine whether or not I think they're in any kind of like real danger of, of, of inadvertently affirming a heresy <laughs> about the person and nature of Christ. Um I, I might say, like, in general, um, I have this weird middle position. Maybe it's not the middle. It feels like a middle position where I, 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 would, I would maybe be so bold as to say that regardless of your motivations, claiming that an icon, and I'm using that word in, in the, the Christian tradition sense, like, that an icon is a second commandment violation i think i would say no matter what like I, I i might be so bold to say that no matter what your reasoning for making that claim that would be an error just in the sense of like i i think it fundamentally on purpose or not misunderstands what an icon is and what um actions an icon includes in it in terms of its use in worship for those traditions that do use it. Um, so it might, I, I think that might be just not a true statement, you know, it, an error in that sense to say, yeah. no, that, that's not actually what's going on. Even if it's, even if it's wrong, right? Even if I think the veneration of icons and worship is, is uh, dangerous or, or ought not to be done. Um, I, I, I don't think that the Eastern Orthodox every day in their churches and the Roman Catholics are, are violating the second commandment. Um, 
So I think that in that sense, I, I might say that I would I would maybe place that position in the category of just just an error or a misunderstanding that may actually come out of a deeper Christological position that does in fact reflect or mirror or echo actually dangerous heretical positions. Um, Interesting. But I'm I'm also not going to say that those who reject, you know, the use of icons in worship, those who who say that icons are second commandment violations by virtue of that denial of, of icon veneration are cut off from communion, <laughs> right? Like, sure. um, I'm not going to say that. Um, and there, I have continued questions that I'm still trying to work out how that relates, like how, how to manage that. Um, this is being quite, quite frank and vulnerable here. How to manage that uh, in light of my understanding of um, the role that God has used ecumenical councils to fulfill and the authority thereof and um, the, 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 the way in which um, the faith has been preserved through the centuries in the actual gathered community of Christians, you know, coming together to answer questions and, and the practices that they've preserved and passed on and all that kind of stuff. So, so if you're listening and, and, and you're Orthodox or you're Presbyterian or you're somewhere in between or you just hear something I say and it sounds kind of muddled or contradictory, um, I fully own that. I'm still working out some of some of of how I um, sort of think through and um, it, you know explain my relation to Nicaea too, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so so I do I do own that and and I'm aware that that some of what I have said today might end up being kind of mushier than I intend it to be because of that. Um, but I hope that more than that it comes off as sort of a like me trying to lay out the cards on the table of what's being said, what's not being said, what's at stake, and what are the sort of non-negotiable things that we can immediately just put on the table as this is what we got to say. And for me, I'm going to say that's this Christological understanding of what the incarnation does and what what the incarnation opens for us to be able to do. Um, But then there are definitely those more spooky sort of areas I'm not sure about yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually said spooky without trying to make a Halloween pun. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that that's that's my long-winded answer. Okay, yeah, no, that's, I've ne- that's I've, helpful. I've, I don't think I've ever given an answer to anyone to any question that was not long-winded. So there you go. <laughs> that's that's why we have a podcast. And, and but but like at the end of the day, like I think maybe my bold you know claim is going to be that like I don't think we have I don't think we have enough charitable conversations. I think I think most people are maybe misinformed, maybe not like they don't understand the full context, but like our, our brothers who might say that this sort of thing is a second commandment violation and thus should not happen. I'm inclined to believe that perhaps they don't quite understand the full context of even everything we've discussed here more broadly. And so my my claim is that I think we need more charitable conversation, especially across like significant theological lines. 
Um, I know that most Protestants don't have a, a great understanding of Catholic or Orthodox um, theology, uh, liturgy, etc. And so like having conversations like this one, I think is really beneficial. Um, and I think at the end of the day too, like my warning is against idolatry, not against the creation of icons. Like the, at the end of the day, the, the bigger issue is, is, um, is the idolatry that lives within our hearts. It's the, the placing of things on pedestals, both literally and symbolically before God. Um, and so that's the greater issue here. And Presbyterians, you can do that without creating graven images of Christ or whatever. You put things on pedestals all the time, just like all of us do. It is part of like our human condition. Um, so yeah, that's where that's where I'm at. So we can uh, yeah. wrap her here. This this one definitely feels um, more unsettled and perhaps more unsettling than. Um, Certainly, the other the other uh, October episodes we've recorded this year, um, but probably any of the Heresy Month ones, because there are all these unanswered questions. So, who knows? We might if, if this was helpful, if this was interesting, you know, let us know. Maybe we'll we'll return to these conversations in in a in a different context than than uh, looking at it from the lens of you know condemned heresy and that kind of thing. But um, do let us know. As always, you can you can let us know through social media at Doxology Podcast, or uh, probably the best way, especially if it's if you've got uh, more you want to say, um, send us a lengthy email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. I immediately delete every email that is not at least three paragraphs long. Um, Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but I won't say. But regardless of, of how long your emails are, thank you for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. We do really appreciate the feedback. Um, like, for example, having this entire conversation exactly because of somebody's uh, desire to, to hear us talk about it and letting us know about it. So do not be shy. We, we'd love to hear from you. And until next week, we will see you.